to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. So, I have learned over the years that age is relative. Some people may be technically older, but act a lot younger than their years. Um, Some people may be technically younger, but they act much older than their years. I tend to think that I fall on the latter side, um, but I've been told that my perception is a little off. I don't act older than my current age. I act way older than my current age. Apparently, people think I'm about 80. Why? Maybe it's because I enjoy simple pleasures, you know, things like knitting or crocheting or drinking tea, wearing really old sweaters or cats. Why do cats make me 80? I'm not sure. But I think that the real reason people think I'm actually 80 is one other thing about me. My preferred bedtime is like 8 o'clock. It was past 8 o'clock. Why are we still up? What are we doing? Are we like crazy 20 year olds eating Jack in the Box, watching Twilight, writing papers, talking about the debatable quality of the Ant-Man movies until like 10 o'clock at night? 10 o'clock at night is like the latest people stay up, right? This is ridiculous. I don't wanna talk to you at 10 o'clock at night. You're very interesting and all, but my brain shuts off at 10 o'clock at night. And I don't care how funny or not funny Paul Rudd is at 10 o'clock at night. Instead, I could be snuggled in my bed, sweetly dreaming, sweetly sleeping, letting my weary 80-year-old body rest, instead of talking about Ant-Man. I really like to sleep. So it was a terrible shock to me when I had my first son. Oh man, nothing could have prepared me for the, that level of sleep deprivation. I thought, you know, I've made it through four years of college, two years of a very intense master's program. I fold all-nighters. I've made it through 12 finals weeks. I can deal with some lack of sleep. I got this baby in the bag. I did not have that baby in the bag. It was like the worst three months of my life. When I imagined sleep deprivation and anticipation, while tenderly stroking my pregnant belly, awaiting the arrival of my firstborn, I always imagined it in the context of a finals week, because that was the most lack of sleep I'd had up at that point. I stay up all week, pull a couple of nighters, take a couple of naps, but it's ultimately not too bad. Sure, I'm a little tired, maybe a little exhausted, but I can make it until Saturday. On Saturday, it will all be over, and I can go to bed at 8 o'clock. Having a baby was like finals week that didn't end for 12 straight weeks. There was no Saturday. There was never going to be more than two and a half hours of consecutive sleep, ever. I remember getting to the end of that first week and crying exhausted in my husband's arms. I can't do this, I said. I just need like four hours of sleep. (laughs) That's all I want, four hours. My standards were so low at that point that four hours was the pinnacle of what one could dream of. Four hours. It was horrible. My baby, he was wonderful, Um, but me, Operating in sleep-deprived, catnap, chronic fatigue mode was the worst. 
I'm not a good person when I don't sleep. The world looks bleaker, more depressing, more hopeless. People seem worse. Like suddenly they've morphed into the worst versions of themselves. When really I'm just the worst version of myself. My emotions are haywire. I can't connect to God. I'm exhausted. I'm mean. I'm depressed. And all just because I need a little sleep. When we were getting ready to have our second baby, I was asking my husband, Ryan, what he was least looking forward to about having another one. And this is honestly what he said to me. Well, Megan, what I'm least looking forward to is you. <laughs> Ouch. But it's true. I'm a terrible person when I don't have enough sleep. And apparently, sleep-deprived me is worse than poop up the back. It's worse than middle-of-the-night feedings. It's worse than screaming babies and Ryan's own personal sleep deprivation. That's how terrible I am when I don't sleep. Hopefully, you're not as terrible as me um, when you're sleep-deprived. You guys may have babies coming, though, so watch out. But I have a suspicion that I am not the only one who isn't that great when I'm not sleeping enough. Now, unfortunately, chronic sleep deprivation is not just an issue for blissful new parents. Who here wouldn't mind a little bit more sleep this next week? I think that's everyone almost, um, as I suspected. Now, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention agree with you, and they say that insufficient sleep is a public health problem, and the statistics get worse. So this is a handy infographic from The Good Body. Can we pop that up there? Um, who knows if they're reputable, um, but information seems more compelling when it's presented in an aesthetically pleasing manner. And I think this looks pretty, so we'll believe it. All right, here's what it says. Each night, the average American sleeps 6.8 hours, which is much less than like my preferred nine hours of sleep. Apparently in 1910, the average person did sleep nine hours. Um, so I'm just carrying over my sleeping habits from 1910. That's why I'm 80 years old. Um, apparently since 1985, the percentage of adults getting less than six hours of sleep each night has increased by 31%. People are progressively getting less and less sleep. And 35% of Americans don't get the recommended seven hours of sleep each night, which might include some of you people out here. And apparently, in case you guys didn't know, not sleeping can have some really bad side effects, aside from just frustrating your husband. Number one bad side effect, killing people. This is a really bad side effect. Um, accidents such as car crashes, job injuries, and mistakes while working can all be influenced by lack of sleep. Lack of sleep was actually a big factor in multiple recent disasters, including the 1979 nuclear accident at Three Mile Island, the massive Exxon Valdez oil spill, and the 1986 meltdown, nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl. Not sleeping can kill people. Okay, the second bad side effect, killing your brain. Mm, that's not a good one either. Sleep is necessary for our cognitive processing, and without it, we have impaired attention, alertness, concentration, reasoning, problem solving, all of which makes it difficult to learn and make decisions. Sleep is also super important for your memory consolidation, so lack of sleep can lead to forgetfulness and memory lapses. Not good. Number three, killing your body. So many health problems are linked to chronic sleep loss. Heart disease, heart attacks, heart failure, irregular heartbeat, your heart likes to sleep. High blood pressure, strokes, diabetes, these are not good things. Lack of sleep and chronic stress are also closely related, 
And stress is one of the huge contributors to health problems. Double me. All right, number four bad side effect, killing sexy time. Now this might not be at the top of your priority list. Um, it's kind of near mine, but um, <laughs> sorry, that's too much information. Okay. <laughs> um, the lack of sleep leads to lack of sex. Reduced libido, reduced energy, less sexy snuggles with your darling. Go to sleep before you sex it up. All right, number five, killing your positivity. Lack of sleep is also closely tied to many mental health issues, such as depression, anxiety, and even hallucinations and mania. When you're not sleeping, it's hard to have a positive outlook on life and to feel hopeful and centered. That's not good. Okay, number six, killing your youth. When we don't sleep, we promote premature aging. Sleep allows natural tissue repair, and when we sleep too little, we release this stress hormone, cortisol, which breaks down the collagen in your skin, aging the appearance of your skin. So if you wanna look old, don't sleep. All right, number seven, kill your waistline. Also, if you wanna get fat, don't sleep. Not getting enough sleep throws off all the hormone balance of your hormones, especially the one that tells you when you're full, so you overeat when you don't sleep. Um, lack of sleep also actually stimulates your appetite and cravings for starchy, high-fat foods to make up for your lack of energy, and so you get fat. All right, number eight, it kills your judgment. So studies have found that people with chronic sleep deprivation think that they've adjusted to their sleep deprivation and that they're still performing at their normal levels. The studies tested these people, and they were not performing at their normal levels, despite what they thought. So what's crazy is that lack of sleep blinds your ability to even accurately assess your own need for sleep. You think you're doing okay, but you are not. And last really bad side effect of not sleeping is killing you. So in the Whitehall 2 study, British researchers looked at how sleep patterns affected the mortality of more than 10,000 British civil servants over two decades. The results showed that those who had cut their sleep from seven hours to five hours or fewer at night nearly doubled their risk of death from all causes, like sharks. Probably not sharks, but. <laughs> but if you don't sleep, you could die, so you should sleep. This is not a good list of side effects. Um, but if not getting enough sleep is so bad for us, why aren't all of us sleeping enough? Why do we continue to be sleep deprived, to need caffeine to make it through the day, feeling dog tired, exhausted, and worn out? Why aren't all of us sleeping nine hours at night, waking up refreshed, well rested, and ready for the day in the morning? If not sleeping can literally kill us, why don't we sleep? In her book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, author Tish Harrison Warren offers a partial answer. The holiness of rest and the blessedness of unproductivity is a foreign idea to many of us. We're people of 24-hour big box stores, VR drive-thrus, and all-night coffee shops. We have late-night TV and late-late-night TV. We have five-hour energy shots available in the grocery store checkout. We are worn-out ministers, worn-out parents, worn-out business people, worn-out believers. This public health epidemic is indicative of a spiritual crisis a culture of disordered love and distorted worship. We disdain limits. There's a reason that we don't sleep, but it's not because sleep isn't good for us. It's because we're disordered. We've forgotten the holiness of rest and the blessedness of unproductivity in pursuit of these disordered loves and disordered worships. 
We've forgotten that we're limited. We've forgotten that the pace that our world runs at is not the pace that God runs at. If we're going to recapture our days and be formed into the image of Christ this day and tomorrow and the day after that and the lifetime of days that we will live, we have to reclaim our sleep. In our workaholic, image-garaged, over-caffeinated, entertainment-addicted, and supercharged culture, submission to our creatureliness is a necessary and often overlooked part of discipleship. So how can we pursue God in our sleeping? Now, changing our sleeping habits is not as simple as just recognizing that we need to sleep more. Um, I'm sure that all of you would have agreed, even before we listed all of those terrible ways that sleep affects you, um, that you should sleep more. Oftentimes we want to sleep more. We say, I'll go to bed earlier tonight, or when things are less stressful, I'll finally get some sleep, but we don't do it. We struggle to stop, to put our heads down on the pillow at a reasonable hour, to set aside the time for adequate sleep. There's too much to do. There's too many things on our plate. There's too much to see or watch or get done. There's just not enough time. But is there not enough? Or is something else going on? Let's take a look at the disorders underneath why we don't sleep. So number one, disordered limits. Sometimes we don't sleep because our relationship with limits is off. So this can be a little hard to grasp at first, but let me explain. Um, this is not a new problem. Humanity has had difficulties with limits since the dawn of time. The very first sin of the Bible was actually a violation of limits. Let's take a look at Genesis chapters two and three. God creates the world, and then he creates two people, Adam and Eve, to live in that world. God gives them work and pleasure and good food to eat, but he also creates a limit in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. God clearly and explicitly creates and states a limit on humanity. Everything is available for them to eat except for the fruit of one tree. That's the limit. But the sinful nature fights against limits, and Adam and Eve struggle to obey this limit. This is what Genesis 3 tells us. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. So she understood the limit. She understood that this was the expectation. And the serpent replies this way to her. You won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The text then goes on to tell us that Adam and Eve choose to eat from the tree, not only to satisfy their hunger and pleasure, but also because they wanted the knowledge that it would give them. They wanted to be like God, and they resisted the one limit that God gave them. And in the process, they destroyed their perfect relationship with God, each other, and creation, and began the cycle of sin that we perpetuate to this very day. Resisting limits and fighting against our inherent finiteness and boundaries is part of our continued rebellion against God. We don't want to be limited. We don't want to have rules. We don't want to have to obey. We want to be like God, invincible, all-sufficient, autonomous, all-knowing, all-powerful, limitless. But we're not. You have limits. 
You have to eat or you will die. You have to drink water or you will die. You have to sleep or you literally will die. We're created creatures, not the creator. And part of the inherency of being created creatures is that we have limits. We can't do everything. We can't be everything. We can't even go 48 hours without sleeping. Because at that point, your brain involuntarily shuts off and enters what scientists call microsleeps to keep you functioning. We are dependent, limited, needy creatures, and our powerful need for sleep is a daily reminder to us of our finite nature. Warren says it this way, our bodily limits are our chief daily reminder that we are but dust. We inhabit a frail, vulnerable humanity, but we hate being reminded. Many of us have a very distorted relationship with our limits. Viewing these limits like I need to sleep, I need to rest, I can't do everything, as hindrances or as these obstacles to overcome rather than the gifts that they are. God gave us the gift of sleep because we don't have to do everything. We're not meant to do everything. We're not meant to take on more than we can handle, to run at a million miles, miles an hour, to produce, 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 to be machines that don't sleep. The gift of sleep reminds us that we have a finite amount of time and energy to give. And that is the only amount of time and energy that we are meant to give. The gift of sleep reminds us that he is God and we are not. And it is a gift to be limited because it is permission to not do it all. Recognizing our need for sleep as a God-given limit and gift requires a huge shift in perspective. Um, and the shift will probably not happen overnight, no pun intended. Um, but you can begin to take small steps to stop fighting the limit of sleep and to begin embracing the gift of sleep. So first, let your finite nature inform your decisions. Let me explain. If needing seven to nine hours of sleep each night is a gracious limit that God has put on your body, that means that God has already detailed how much time and energy is reasonable to give. So you take 24 hours of the day, you subtract eight hours of sleep out of that, and that equals 16 hours in which God has said it is okay for you to do things. In these 16 hours, you need to eat, you need to wash your body, you need to pray, you need to work, you need to connect with people, you need to commute, you need to wipe your baby's bum if you have a baby. But only in those 16 hours, because after that, God's limit on your body details that you need to sleep. So does everything that you want to get accomplished in the day fit in those 16 hours? Those are the hours that God has said is okay for you to do things. If all the things you want to get done don't fit in those 16 hours, you need to cut things. God has protected eight hours of your day for rest by placing the limit of your need to sleep on your body. And this limit tells us God does not intend for us to spend more than 16 hours of the day doing. Respect that design. Trim your life down to embrace that limit and stop living in rebellion to God. Second, you need to practice sleeping. Now, it sounds weird, but it's actually something that you need to do. Weirdly, our bodies learn how to go to sleep. You can't just like flip an off switch and sink immediately into sleep like a robot. Your body gets accustomed and attuned to cues that tell it to transition into rest. And we have to intentionally build those routines of rest. Um, and we start this process way back in infancy. So when my sons were just born, I trained them how to sleep by the routines that I put around them. If I nursed them before putting them to bed, I trained them that sucking was a sleep cue. If I rocked them before putting them to bed, I trained them that being held and snuggled was a sleep cue. 
If I drove around in the car, I trained them that the noise and vibration of a moving vehicle was a sleep cue. If I laid them down in their crib, I trained them that this place was a sleep cue. Whatever routine I chose informed how their brain learned how to fall asleep. And then without the cue, it is now hard for them to fall asleep. We too have sleep cues as adults. What are your sleep cues? What is the routine that you use to help your body transition to rest? Is it watching an hour of TV? Is it flipping through your phone? Is it drinking chamomile tea? Who knows, knitting a little bit? It's hard for your body to learn how to go to sleep easily and consistently without a habit of routine around sleep. It's also totally okay if you're thinking through and you're like, you know what? I don't know that I actually have a sleep routine right now. One of the easiest ways to get started practicing sleeping is to choose a bedtime. It sounds childish, but it's true. Your body has an internal clock, and if you consistently put your body to sleep at the same time every day, that time of day will become a sleep cue for your body to know to go to sleep. Proverbs 3.24 tells us, when you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. You get to choose the when. Choosing to lie down is a conscious decision that you make, and you have control over when that when happens. Choose a bedtime, stick to it. Begin a new habit of sleep that respects your limits and created nature. So sometimes we don't sleep because we have disordered limits, but sometimes we don't sleep because we have disordered loves. So a decent indicator of what we love is what we willingly give up sleep for. For instance, I love my boys, most of the time. When they were each first born into this world with a stomach the size of a grape, their only tool in life a small, mewling cry, I sacrificed my sleep to fill that grape-sized belly every two hours. They're lucky that I was drugged up on mama hormones, otherwise I probably wouldn't have done it. And when my husband and I were first dating, I also gave up a lot of sleep, staying up until two or three or four o'clock in the morning, just way past eight o'clock at night. Um, talking about the life and universe and everything with this fascinating human that I was aching to get to know. Little did he know that he was actually marrying an 80-year-old woman. <laughs> it was kind of a big shock for him. <laughs> so what will you give up sleep for? Good conversations with friends, an early morning hike, a sick baby, taking someone to the airport at 3 o'clock in the morning. Shout out to Tyler, who has done this numerous times for us. We love you. You're awesome. Um, what you sacrifice sleep for reveals what you love. But Warren also confesses that it is not always good things that keep her awake. My willingness to sacrifice sleep also reveals less noble loves. I stay up later than I should, drowsy, collapsed on the couch, vaguely surfing the internet, watching cute puppy videos. Or I stay up trying to squeeze more activity into the day to pack it with as much productivity as possible. My disordered sleep reveals a disordered love idols of entertainment or productivity. I definitely find myself doing this. Um, just this week, I wanted to stay up to watch the second movie of the Twilight Saga New Moon. I know, <laughs> I know, it's so bad. And it's really embarrassing to admit. But I just finished the first one and like the second one just like popped up in the queue right after. It's like Hulu knew that I wanted to find out what happened to Bella and Edward. Would she become a vampire? Would she ever stop being incredulous at normal things? <laughs> Would the brooding looks, trembling lips, and constant sighs persist? The suspense was too great to bear. I had to know. So I started watching New Moon at 11 o'clock at night. 
um, which is a terrible thing to sacrifice sleep for. Luckily, my kind husband intervened. He wrested the TV remote away from me and turned out the light, after which I promptly fell asleep because I was exhausted. It was like three hours past my bedtime. <laughs> but what deep unhealth lurks in me that I was willingly going to sacrifice my sleep for Twilight Saga New Moon. What less noble loves do you give up your sleep for? Researching Twilight memes, which are hilarious by the way, scrolling through Instagram, watching Hallmark movies, reading BuzzFeed articles, maybe cramming for a test, writing a lab report or a work report, eating Taco Bell, watching porn, overspending online, obsessing over a comment that your friend or coworker made, feeling angry or bitter at someone. When you give up sleep for these things, maybe your loves are out of whack. Which disordered loves do your lack of sleep reveal? Just like humanity has struggled with disordered limits for a long time, people have also struggled with disordered loves for a long time. Over and over throughout the Bible and history, God's people have worshiped things that are not God. And our hearts struggle against the sinful inclination to find anything but God to give our love and worship to. Um, here's what God tells his people in the book of Exodus. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The prophets speak over and over to God's people throughout the Old Testament, pointing out the idols in their lives, the things that they have chosen to put before God, to love more than him, begging them to abandon these false and unfulfilling loves. But this isn't just an Old Testament problem. In the New Testament, the writers also tell people to stop following idols, to stop giving their love to things that aren't God. 1 Corinthians says, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And the Apostle John writes, dear, ch dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And this problem of idolatry wasn't just a problem in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It is still a problem for us now. Our idols just look a little bit different. Maybe for you, it's productivity. Maybe you've made an idol of your work, how much you can accomplish, what other people think of you. You're a slave to responsibility, taking on too much, feeling the pressure to sacrifice your sleep, your well-being, your time to those grades, that performance, that project. Maybe for you, it's entertainment. You've made an idol out of distraction, avoiding boredom or a quiet moment at all costs. If you're not being amused, informed, entertained, or distracted, life is unbearable. You have to be, always be engaged and stimulated, sacrificing your sleep to Netflix binge, to read clickbait, to play a game on your phone, to surf the internet. Maybe for you it's a relationship, the one that you have or the one that you're aching for. You can't go to sleep until you talk to them. You need them nearby to feel whole or connected. You sacrifice sleep worrying about your future spouse when you'll finally get into a relationship, wishing you had someone. Anything that becomes more important to you than God and his design for you is an idol. Anything that you turn to to fulfill what only God can fulfill is an idol. These are our disordered loves, and we often lay our sleep on their altars, begging them to make us feel better, to numb the pain, to make us feel whole, or good, or loved, or worthy. This is what the prophet Isaiah has to say. 
From the rest of the wood, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? These things are a lie. None of these things can fulfill the deep need you have for God in your life. Only God can give you a sense of worthiness, a sense of peace. Only God can calm your restless heart and soothe your aching soul. Only God can satisfy your deep desire to be good and whole and loved. When we cling to these idols in our lives, productivity, entertainment, other people, we turn away from the only one who can satisfy us. The prophet Jonah warns those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. These idols that we so routinely sacrifice our sleep to are worthless, and they invite us to disregard and turn away from God's love. Don't let this be. How can we begin to find peace in our disordered loves? First, we have to recognize and identify those idols. So it can be really easy to be self-deceived about what we love, what has become an idol to us. And that's part of their power. That's how these unhealthy loves can perpetuate for so long. Um, it takes wisdom and a lot of bravery to recognize an idol for what it is. A block of wood, that's a lie. What are the blocks of wood in your life that you are failing to see for what it is? If you're having a hard time thinking of it, um, take a look at what you're sacrificing your sleep for as a clue. What do you stay up late for? What's keeping you from turning out the light and going to bed and respecting your limit? What deeper idols are hiding behind these things that you sacrifice your sleep for? Once you've identified your idols, second, repent of your idolatry. Warren puts it well, in the nitty gritty of my daily life, repentance for idolatry may look as pedestrian as shutting off my email an hour earlier or resisting that alluring clickbait to go to bed. <laughs> Stop sacrificing your sleep to these idols. This can be really difficult, especially if you've trained your body to fall asleep to an idol, like clickbait or distraction or porn or a person. Um, it can be helpful to intentionally choose a practice that connects you to God instead of, instead, to begin training your sleep routine around God instead of this idol. Um, you could try something like journaling, the prayer of examine before you go to bed, um, reflecting on your day with God. You could pray, you could read scripture, um, do a Christian bedtime yoga video, those are fun. Um, it also doesn't have to be anything stereotypically spiritual. Um, take time to take a shower, to brush your hair, um, read a chapter of a life-giving book before bed. These things could also be soothing, restful, and rechain your sleep routine, giving you space to connect with God. Thank him for your body and day. Be present to him, putting him first rather than these other loves. When you choose sleep over these idols in your life, you begin to surrender their power over you, and you are choosing God and his design in your body first. Sometimes we don't sleep because we have disordered limits. Sometimes we don't sleep because we have disordered loves. Sometimes we don't sleep because we have disordered trust. So I went through a period right before my second son, Eden, was born where I would have many panic attacks before bed. 
My mind would get caught on an idea and I had a really hard time falling asleep. My mind playing over scenario after scenario, spiraling into these worse and worse anxieties until I couldn't calm down and fall asleep. Looking back on it now, some of the things I was worrying about seem really silly. Um, I had a legitimate can't breathe, can't stop crying panic, panic attack over the idea that my older son Roland would ask me to hold him after the baby was born and I would have to say no because I was holding the baby. This reduced me to an hour of sobbing and needing a paper bag to calm down. Um, maybe it was the pregnancy hormones, I'm not sure. It seems silly now, but in the middle of the night back then, it didn't seem so silly to me. Other worries have kept me up at night too, pushing off sleep because of an idea in my head. Um, sometimes it'd be something small, like worrying about a conversation that I've had with a friend that didn't go well, worrying that she saw me in a certain way, worried that I had offended her. Um, I used to be really afraid of my husband Ryan dying, of him getting into a car crash or getting shot or having a stroke. And I couldn't sleep once I started thinking about it. After my children were born, um, I would worry about them dying in their sleep, that I would come to get them in the morning and they would be cold and dead. And I would worry that they would be crying and I wouldn't hear them, that they would die crying and afraid with no one knowing. And these things aren't real, you know, um, but there are these thoughts that get stuck in your head and they keep you awake at night. And these worries revealed where my trust lay. The only reason that these worries kept me up is because I believed that I could do something about it. When I go to sleep, I surrender my ability to do anything, to solve a problem, to keep someone safe, to be in control. When I'm asleep, I'm of no use to anyone. Staying awake worrying reveals that I trust what I am able to do. And it gives me the false sense that I can do something about what I'm worrying about, that I can solve these problems, that I am in control, that I can keep my babies from dying if I stay awake. And the truth is I can't. My worries that keep me up at night reveal that I put my trust in myself. Um, and I think that a lot of us subconsciously do this. If I can't solve this problem, no one can. If I can't keep my baby safe, no one can. If I can't keep my husband from dying by the sheer force of my worry, no one can. If I go to sleep, everything will fall apart. My disordered sleep reveals my disordered trust and the faulty belief that I have the power to keep the people I love safe and to make the things in my life work. But Psalm 127 reminds us, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Who actually holds my sons in the dead of night? God. Who actually guards or calls home my husband? God. Who actually watches over my life and my relationships and what is important to me? God, not me. By surrendering to sleep, I surrender to trust in he who never sleeps, he who is ever watchful, he who is carrying the world and the people I love and care about in his hand. Psalm 121 reminds us, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither sleep will neither slumber nor sleep. God doesn't go to bed. God is always awake and active and present. 
And going to sleep is an act of surrender. It is an act of trust in God. It is a recognition that God is the one in control, not me. One of the really beautiful things about the Hebrew way of dividing up the day is that in Hebrew thought, the day actually begins at sundown, not in the morning. Um, and in this mindset, the day doesn't begin with your activity, with your doing and your accomplishments. Instead, the day begins with you going to sleep, doing absolutely nothing, accomplishing nothing. And instead, it begins with God beginning his glorious work in the world without you and without your help. God is in control, not you. And part of the work that God does in the night is to work on you. John Bailey, a Scottish pastor, says, we wake up better men than when we went to sleep. I don't know about you, but this is so true for me. I am a much better person in the morning after I've slept. More loving, more patient, more kind, more hopeful, much more Christ-like. And I think that this is a beautiful picture of our Christian journey with God, because I oftentimes fall into the trap of believing that it is by my effort that I become more Christ-like, that I have to strive to be better, to love more, to get less angry, to be less judgmental. But the Bible actually teaches us that it is God who does the work in my heart, not me. I simply have to connect to him and surrender to his work in my life. And at nighttime while I'm asleep, I literally can do nothing but surrender, and God resets and remolds my heart to reflect him better. Warren says it this way, about one-third of our lives are spent in sleep. Through these collective years of rest, God is at work in us and the world, redeeming, healing, giving grace. Each night when we yield to sleep, we practice letting go of our self-reliance on self-effort and abiding in the good grace of our creator. Thus, embracing sleep is not only a confession of our limits, it is also a joyful confession of God's limitless care for us. Do you have trouble surrendering your trust to God? Do you struggle with self-reliance? Do you struggle with relying on your own effort to fix problems, to make things happen, to keep people safe, to be in control? Will the world stop turning without you there to make it happen? God knows how much we struggle with trusting in our own efforts instead of embracing him. And this is one of the reasons that God models and gives us the practice of Sabbath. And Sabbath is the spiritual practice of submitting and surrendering one day in the week to God. So it's basically like a bigger version of going to bed at night. Um, it's modeled after the creation story where God does all of his work on days one through six. And then on the seventh day, he simply rests. God who created us knows our weaknesses and our inclination to lean on ourselves and our own efforts. He recognizes our tendency to trust ourselves over him. And so he gives us this gift and mandate of the Sabbath. This is the fourth commandment. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. So just so you know, in case you're not familiar with the Ten Commandments, um, where this comes from, stopping and resting for one day per week is on the same list as not murdering people and not cheating on your spouse. I think that we often undersell the importance of Sabbath. You know, I'll do it if I have time. I'll do it when life is less busy. I just have too much work to do to give up a whole day to God. But God thinks that you stopping your activity and busyness and striving and managing and achieving for one day 
is as important as you remaining faithful to your husband or wife or not killing someone. Sabbath is critically important for the state of your soul. Without you stopping your activity every week, you begin to forget who actually makes the world run, who actually keeps your life together, the one who is actually in control. You begin to trust in yourself, setting yourself and your will and your activity higher than God. Sabbath is a gift from God, and failing to honor the Sabbath day is a disdain of our limits and is placing the love of our own activity and what we need to accomplish above God. The prophet Ezekiel reminds us, I gave them my Sabbath days of rest as a sign between them and me. It was to remind them that I am the Lord who had set them apart to be holy. The prophet Isaiah tells us, keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath in everything you do on that day and don't follow your own desires or talk idly. Then the Lord will be your delight. I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance I promised your ancestor Jacob. I, the Lord, have spoken. I want to invite you to begin reordering your disordered trust by observing the Sabbath. You have to trust that God knows best how we are designed. That God knows that six days of work with his blessing are better than seven days of our work without his blessing. Keeping Sabbath is an act of trust because we surrender our ability to make everything happen with all of the time available to us. We trust instead in God and in his work in us, our lives, and the world. I, I know that making change in these areas is really difficult. Um, it's difficult to push back against the pace of life that you've already set up. Um, it's really difficult to reconsider commitments that you've already made. It's difficult to rein in where you've overspent or overinvested your time and energy. And I understand. And God understands too. Take it slowly. Give yourself grace. But keep surrendering your hold on your life by choosing to rest and enjoy one day out of the week with God. So why don't we sleep? We are people of disordered limits, disordered loves, disordered trust. But it doesn't have to be that way. What if Christians were known as a countercultural community of the well-rested, not the worn out? People who embrace our limits with zest and even joy. What if we were known as loving and kind and joyful because we submitted to God's design for our bodies and slept? What if life didn't have to be haggard and worn and breakneck and numb? What if living life the way that God tells us to actually works? Jesus tells you, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.